we have to err on the side of presence. From Interfaith Alliance, this is The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. The most natural human instinct is to retreat from another person's sorrow and suffering. And we have to counter that instinct by finding our way to one another in precisely those moments. Rabbi Sharon Brous is a respected faith leader, inspiring speaker, and an effective organizer. Now she's released a powerful new book called The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. And I'm excited to have the author joining us for this edition of The State of Belief. As we celebrate the 18th anniversary of The State of Belief, I want to make sure you're subscribed to the next generation of The State of Belief podcast. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You'll hear this conversation in full as well as recent interviews with Rain Wilson, Bishop William Barber, Imam Abdullah Antepli, and many others. And coming soon, my exclusive conversation with Rob Reiner and Dan Partland about their essential new documentary film on Christian nationalism called God and Country. It would really help to have you subscribe, rate, and tell the people you're close to all about what you're hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest. Rabbi Sharon Brous is a leading voice in reanimating religious life in America. She's the founding and senior rabbi at IKAR, a Jewish community in Los Angeles dedicated to invigorating Jewish practice and inspiring people of faith to reclaim a soulful, justice-driven voice. She's also a senior fellow at Auburn Seminary, where I first met her. Sharon has just published a new book titled The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. The Amen Effect brings together Jewish wisdom and contemporary science to celebrate the primal human need for connection and the hope that meeting this need can give us in a fragmented, isolated age. Rabbi Sharon Brous, welcome back to The State of Belief. Thank you so much, Paul. It is so good to be with you. Oh, my goodness. It is so good to be with you. And I just want to thank you. I'm going to start out from a place of gratitude. I just spent wonderful hours with your book, The Amen Effect. I literally, it was the book I didn't know I needed until I started reading it. You know, I mean, I really feel like anybody, our listeners, please do yourself a favor. If, If you feel like you need some inspiration in this very difficult time, pick up The Amen Effect. It is just really, it's a very beautiful book. And I know it comes out of hard work like really lived experience. And I just want to start by saying thank you for all of the incredible work that you've done as a religious leader. And as, of course, you're like a big prophetic voice and you're a big fancy pants in the religion world. But what you really are is someone who walks with people. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was just like so evident in this book, the the kind of lovely compassion and heartfelt concern that you have for the people who you walk with. And so let's just start there. Like, tell me about like the spark for writing this book. 
Oh, thank you so much, Paul. I'm really touched by your words. Um, I I gave a sermon 10 years ago on Kol Nidre, the holiest night of the year for Jews. And it was a sermon that had been growing in me for 10 years. We set out to build this community in 2004 in Los Angeles, and we were driven by the question of how could we mine our Jewish inheritance to live lives of meaning and purpose? And what does it mean to be a human being living in a world of moral crisis? How can we find our clarity and our courage to build a just and loving world? And I realized as we set out to build the community and the community was growing very, very quickly that I had never explicitly talked about the fact that those who dream of building the beloved community out in the world have to actually do the hard work of building beloved community internally. We have to learn how to turn to one another in, in celebration, in sorrow, and in solidarity. We have to hold each other's broken hearts rather than just fighting in an abstract way for a world of wholeheartedness outside, for a world of justice, for a world of human thriving. We have to create the conditions for human thriving internally. And this sermon, you know this, in, you know, from our work. I mean, sometimes there's a sermon that just sticks. It just lands yeah. and it yeah. changes the way the community functions. And I felt it happening in real time. And I, I felt like what we were what we were doing was saying, we are going to turn to one another in love, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. And that is going to be the way that we lead in building a world of love outside. Yeah. I, I love that. And, and and you tell that story so beautifully that, you know, you it, it was I want to I want to lift up uh, your I think it was your grandmother. Um, you know, so there was someone who kind of is a through line about like you show up. You it just matters. It yes. matters that you show up. It matters that you show up uh, for a, a wedding, but it matters even more sometimes that you show up at a funeral. Um, and it just, it, you know, it's, I just, so t let's just t tell me a little bit about this, this lovely woman who, um, who, who do you kind of go back to, you know, when you're like, yeah. why do we do it? Well, like my grandmother, was it your grandmother? Yeah, this is Grandma Millie. This is my beloved Grandma Millie. And literally the rule that she had was that you just just show up, get out of your own head and go celebrate the beautiful moments because life is precious and precarious and fragile and you have no idea what tomorrow will bring. So get on a plane and go to the go to your friend's wedding. Just find a way to get there. And I mean, she used to say it like if God forbid you'd get you'd you'd go for the funeral, you better find a way to get there for the bat mitzvah, you know. Right. So right. and I and I that's so it became sort of the lesson of my life. My my parents began to embody this message. I grew up learning this message, and I ultimately learned, as I describe in chapter one, that grandma's grandma's message was really rooted in the assumption that we would show up for the hard times, and so also we need to show up for the joy. I but see. it's not that we naturally show up for the hard times either. And I learned this the hard way when my teacher and rabbi Marcelo Bronstein lost his mother. And as yeah. I describe in the book, I mean, Marcelo is just this incredibly beloved, you know, religious leader figure. And um, and I, I had already moved to Los Angeles from New York. And I honestly thought like he's going to be surrounded by people. The last thing he needs is the burden of my presence there. I hand wrote a letter, mailed it. And I saw him a few months later. I didn't ever pick up the phone even. 
I thought he was bombarded. I, I didn't think he needed me. And he said to me when, when he saw me, I needed you and you weren't there. He said, next time show up. And I thought, oh my God, my grandma literally taught me that her whole life. And then I, but I never thought about it on the other side. And so I realized we have to err on the side of presence. And people yeah. will say to us, I need a little privacy right now. I need a little space, the boundary, but we should work on the assumption that we show up with food, with, you know, with love, with groceries, with care, and that we are not abandoning people in their time of greatest need because the most natural human instinct is to retreat from another person's sorrow and suffering. And we have to counter that instinct by finding our way to one another in precisely those moments. Yeah, it is such a lesson there. You know, this book has many moments of joy and also many moments of sorrow, which is that comes comes with the territory of what you've decided to put your life together with, which is being a religious leader, where you really walk with people. And one of the great quotes that, that you said, which has really stuck with me, was especially for people who have lost children and how hard it was even to, to figure out how to show up for someone in a moment of pain like that. That's a hard room to enter because you yes. think you're supposed to be able to offer them something. There's nothing you can offer them at that point right. aside from being there and not telling them what it means in some ways. And, you know, and I just feel like it's a hard lesson to learn, but that's one of the lessons of this consistent through lines. You show up for people, you offer them the benefit of your presence, which doesn't have to have any sort of solution um, aside from seeing them in their sorrow. And there's an amazing, you know, one of the great things about this book that I just want to like highlight, it's, it's very contemporary, you know, LA screenplay, very, you know, she, she, cool, cool, cool. And that's not you saying that. I'm just saying like, you know, we all know what we think about LA, you know, um, it, it, <laughs> and then you go back and go to ancient wisdom and yeah. texts. And, and you, you talk about this one lesson that you saw when you were in seminary and you're like, what are they talking about? And then you come back to it. It's a, a sacred pilgrimage circle in the temple courtyard. And, and you talk about how people will go on, you know, in one direction. But if you're in sorrow, you go in the other direction so that people will see you and yes. they will talk yes. to you and they will ask you a question. What yes. are you, what is the pain that you're holding? Yes. And that was, I, that was just like blew my mind. Yeah, it is an incredible text. And I feel in some ways the book is kind of a love story between a girl and a Mishnah. It's a, this is an ancient <laughs> Wait, what's text. a Mishnah? Tell, what's a, a Mishnah? Mishnah? I'll tell you, the Mishnah is a, is a compendium of Jewish law codified in the year 220 CE. I found this this very pretty obscure text when I was in rabbinical school randomly. I have to say, Paul, I hadn't experienced enough of life at that time to understand what it meant. But I knew enough to know that it had something meaningful and I photocopied it and folded it up and put it back in the book. And then years later, after we built Ikar, after I had my own babies and pregnancy losses, named other people's babies, married people, helped people through divorce, helped people through all kinds of crisis. We had suicide in the community. We had tragedy. Then all of a sudden, one day I picked the book up and this ancient text falls out because I had photocopied it. I thought, oh my God, I know exactly what it's saying. The very essence of our life is our ability to see one another in those moments 
that are so painful and so so rich with human emotion and so raw when the instinct of both parties is to pull away the one who's turning to the left when entering the sacred courtyard was the person who was brokenhearted the avel the mourner the one who was sick or holding a loved one who is sick the one who is worried desperately or lonely worried about the future they would turn to the left all that person wants to do stay in bed in their pajamas and not be in a room full of hundreds of thousands of people looking at them. But they're told to show up and trust that they will be held with love and care. And when you are on the pilgrimage and you maybe saved up your entire life to go up to Jerusalem and circle around the Temple Mount in en masse with humanity like Mecca, like the Hajj, you know, these images of just this incredibly holy movement of human spirits all at once. The last thing you want to do is see some brokenhearted person walking towards you and stop and get out of pace with everyone around you and say, hey, what's your story? Can I help you with something? Like, tell me where your pain is. And so it's totally counterinstinctual. And it's so it, it's such a profound insight into who we who we are and who we need to be, because fundamentally we know that biologically, psychologically and spiritually, we are relational beings we live dialogically at our best and we need to find our way to each other and so i feel like what the rabbis were doing in this kind of ancient obscure ritual is saying don't forget to find your way to each other and then hold each other through the pain and that is that i mean you're you were alluding to this earlier in the screenplay reference but i real all these pieces started to come together for me when i realized that this the mourners prayer which we say as jews it's a very old prayer um is actually about choreographing an encounter between a broken person and a community of people who will see us in our brokenness and not run away and we say immediately in fact the first sentence isn't even a sentence it's like the mourner stands up and just even starts to say like my heart's broken and people interrupt to say we see you and then again, they say, amen, 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 amen. And it's such a powerful acknowledgement of another person's pain. And as you said, it's not in the service of fixing them. It is simply in the service of creating a container to hold each other in our hardest moments so that we know that we're not alone as we navigate the landscape of human suffering. Right, right. I kind of skipped over this, but I shouldn't. Um, what does the word amen mean? In your in your understanding, because it's like something, you know, I, I like to say, actually, it's funny when um, my uh, my my son, uh, when he was very young, two or something, we would go to um, the, uh, the Episcopal Church, which is very scripted. And you're supposed to say certain things at certain times. But he liked the sound of Amen and he liked the sound of Hallelujah. And so he would just kind of go, Amen, Hallelujah, you know, whatever he wanted to, <laughs> which is, is, you know, he's a little bit of a holy roller in a very not yeah. holy roller congregation. But what? It, but I kind of loved it because I was like, okay. You're oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. You know, so you're what, like, my work is, is done here. This is great. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. what, tell me, tell me in your understanding standing as someone who yeah. spent a lot of time and we have the amen effect what what does amen actually mean yeah the rabbis connect the word amen to the word the hebrew word emunah which is the which means faith and i and i imagine it as an expression of faith 
in one another's human experience. So for some people, it's an expression of faith in God. And for all of us, it's here, because you you don't say amen to your own prayer in almost any circumstance. There are a couple of exceptions, but almost never say amen to your own prayer. You say amen to someone else's prayer, which means that we are brought into this dialogical connection in which I am hearing you cry out in your pain or in your joy, and I'm saying, amen, I have faith in you, I trust you, I believe you, I see you in your experience, and I'm lifting that up. And there's something so profound to me about the fact that that word transcends um, faith lines. And so you'll hear, I mean, we say amen in, um, in, in a Jewish context, amen is said often in a Christian context, you'll hear amin in a Muslim context. I love that. And, and there even is, you know, it, it has um, echoes of aseh or asha in, uh, in, in African traditions. So this, the idea that there's a language for seeing another person's experience and then lifting it up is very is a very powerful connective tissue between between human beings and you don't have to be religious to use it right it's because the idea is can i see you and and i what i'm trying to do with this book is essentially say in this time of the loneliness epidemic social alienation isolation so much human cruelty polarization ideological extremism can we see one another and say amen to each other's experience including not just in church and in synagogue and in the mosque but when we see somebody who's weeping in the on the subway can we go over and say hey i see that you're not not okay right now can can I ask you what happened to you? What what's happening in your heart? Do you want to share? When we see someone in the grocery store, we so often pull away when right. we actually need to turn toward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to um, just uh, there. There's a really kind of touching story, um, beautiful story about when you were in uh, seminary, and um, you you read this article or, or saw a news broadcast about women in Mozambique who um, had to go to the top of trees because there was so much, like, I think, a, either a fire or a flood or something, flood. you know, some, flooding. yeah, some terrible flooding. And, and, and they were like, they were bringing their children up there. One woman actually had a, 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 you know, was pregnant and had a child. And you were like, okay, Forget it. I am not doing this seminary thing. I'm going over to um, the human rights area of Columbia University, and uh, and like this is where the real work has to happen. And um, and 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 you you talk about how like some really wise person, uh, you know, professor or director, um, said, you know what, you don't. It's not an either or. Um, mm-hmm. You actually you could do great things with you know finishing your seminary degree and and then you know you, you could pick up the story but you you decided that you could do both that it wasn't like that the role that you were going to take was not just really you know it was not just like kind of isolated in a religious community it had an international a broader perspective but but um but it was important to do the seminary work could you tell a little bit about how you bring those things together because it's in some we talk a little bit uh in in kind of the circle the the tradition that i mean the pastoral and the prophetic and how they go together uh talk a little bit about how that evolution in your life yeah this was uh professor paul martin at columbia at the school of international and public affairs and 
you know, sometimes we can look back on our lives and see how these, how these moments, these chance moments end up transforming the way that we understand who we are and who we're called to be. And I mean, I walked into the office and he was a former priest. So he was a person of faith and he understood something about religious leadership. And I was so certain having spent, I mean, literally 12, 14 hours a day studying Talmud because I was completely wrapped up in the language and discourse of my ancestors and so moved and on this incredible spiritual journey. And then when, the, when these floods happen, I realized, my God, it's not helping anyone. Me studying these ancient texts is not helping save these mothers and babies. And, and this very wise professor said, no, you, being a rabbi who gives a damn about these mothers and babies, that's where the transformative work will happen. And he really sent me back to rabbinical school. I mean, I was convinced I was gonna drop out of rabbinical school with only a year and a half left um, in seminary. And he said, no, don't drop out, finish your studies and do this master's degree in human rights and conflict resolution in the, at SIPA and at the law school. And I was forced to marry my world at that time and to think about how do we build a world of love and justice that is inspired by the deepest teachings of our ancient traditions and that helps us embrace our own responsibility, each of us as individuals and all of us as, as communities of faith that are on parallel journeys toward the fulfillment of this dream. How can we do that in a way that is the deepest expression of our faith values and of our traditions and helps us manifest something in the world um, that the world desperately needs. And I, I do think a lot about that tension between the pastoral and the prophetic, the pastoral and the prophetic. And, and I remember once that somebody said to me early on in my rabbinate, the reason you're so tired is because you haven't figured out if you're a pastor or a prophet. Mm. And I thought at that moment, I thought, no, you are wrong because we are called to be both because you're creating a false binary between someone who loves people and someone who loves justice. But you can't love justice if you don't love people. And you can't love people if you're not fighting for a just world for them to live in. So yeah, I'm tired. But what that really just means is that I need a little vacation so I can continue the work. <laughs> right. not, that my, not that the way that I'm engaging the work is fundamentally wrong. And I, you know, I think that this language that originally was spoken in with regards to journalists, but has been really claimed by clergy over the, you know, over the decades, the job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That is very much what we're called to do. And I think the careful, thoughtful clergy person has to know before and during and after every sermon, what is my primary responsibility right now? And, and knowing that I have to do both, am I, am, I, am I looking at you as a community of brokenhearted people who need first and foremost to be acknowledged in your pain before I utz you and push you and challenge you? Or are you a peep, group of people who are fundamentally super comfortable, too comfortable, and need to be awakened and utzed and pushed as I comfort you and mm. bring you into the work? But always both of those messages are a part of the of the work that we're doing. That's right. That's right. Up next, more with Rabbi Sharon Browse. You can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com, and you'll find links to topics we discussed this week, as well as transcripts and more. 
Make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to the State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Hey there, curious minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meaning. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, But I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. My guest is Rabbi Sharon Brous, author of the new book, The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. The other thing that this book, The Amen Effect, uh, listeners, this is one of the, I would say, the great books of this time. What I love about it is that it reminds us that, you know, when, sometimes when we talk about religion, you go immediately to like, theology and, um, you know, big, big concepts or you, or you think about like, you know, hierarchies or structure, what none of what you talk about is theoretical. It's all in the practice. Religion is practice. It's about what you do. It's about, you know, what you can say, how you can be and, and it's, it's, it's social. No one is religious alone. You know, I mean, that's just not like what religion means. And so I just want to like, you know, just acknowledge that how important it is in a broad sense of helping people understand what religion actually means in this world. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and I mean, not to say that everyone is doing what you're talking about. Religion can be terrible. And we always I always like, you know, I'm the I'm, I'm the first to like acknowledge that I think you would, too. Like, you know, we're not kind of like rah, rah religion for religion's sakes. But I think when religion is done right, it just it means people. It means connection. It means the, it means community. It means the world. Um, and uh, I just think that's a really important part of this. What it, which brings me to like, you know, this this book, the Amen Effect, and what does it mean for, you know, just to keep it kind of quasi, quote unquote local? What does the Amen Effect mean for American democracy right now? You know, as we as many of us are very concerned about what's happening with our sense of um, obligation and responsibility and the joy of being with 
other people in our democracy. What does the Amen effect have to say to the current state of American democracy? Yeah, this is so important. Um, thank you. And you'll see the trajectory of the book, as you know, is it start, it's very personal. And it's very much about individual brokenness and healing, and then about communal brokenness and healing. And then it really expands the lens in chapter eight in the final chapter to really look at our democracy, at our society more broadly. And, and here, I'm just gonna turn to Hannah Arendt, who says that, lo who writes um, that loneliness is a precondition for tyranny, that tyrannical regimes can only thrive in a society where individuals are alienated from one another. And Paul, we, I mean, we're living in a time in which literally 30% of Americans do not know the names of their neighbors to the left and to the right of them, in which 20% of Americans say that they have not one person who they would call a confidant. Nobody to sort through the incredible heartache and challenge and beauty of our time. Nobody. So we are creating the preconditions for a great danger in our society. And I feel this with great urgency. If we do not find a way to look to one another with compassion and with curiosity, with wonder about the other, then we're doing great damage, not only to ourselves, but to our democracy as hard as it is for us to find our way to one another in sorrow, it is even harder to find our way to one another in solidarity, when, especially when we see the other as a, a threat to our way of thinking or way of being. And so in chapter eight, I, I reveal not to be a spoiler here, but in this Mishnah, in this ancient text, this very terse, you know, couple line text, it talks about the people who turn to the left as the mourners, but there's a second category that also turns to the left. And I extrapolate from mourners to all brokenhearted people. But the second category is called the menudeh. And the menudeh is a very particular rare um, punishment of ostracization. Those who are ostracized in the ancient world, it's essentially the step before full excommunication. They don't count in a, in a prayer quorum. Um, they have to socially distance from everyone else. They're essentially outside the realm of social encounter. And those people also turn to the left. And those people are also greeted by those who come from the right, who also ask them, what happened to you? And they say, I was ostracized. And they too are blessed. And that is absolutely astonishing because these are people who we would not see as part of our circle of care and concern because of their own behavior or words, which are threatening to me. And so the question of chapter eight is, who are we called to see? Who might be outside the bounds of comfort for us? And I'm really clear in that chapter. I try to be really clear. That a, that a precondition has to be our own safety, that this work is not for everyone who's in an impacted or vulnerable community, that it's if it's not safe for me to encounter someone, I, then I'm not called to encounter them. But most people we can turn to with curiosity and with a sense of wonder and say, even people who we have been hurt by and say, hey, tell me what the world looks like from your vantage point, because I can yeah. see that you're full of sorrow and I also am. And maybe in our shared sorrow, we can find a language that we can speak in together with one another. Mm. Oh and God. that we That's must so do deep. if we're going to yeah. save our, our democracy and our society. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the hardening of the heart and the sense of like, there is, you know, 
us and them. And, you know, I find myself slipping into it. I mean, it's very like this is, you know, we're, you know, <laughs> you you and I know, like a lot of times preachers sound like they're preaching uh, to other people, but we're off, often need need to hear our own words. And I certainly, you know, I can get, especially when I feel fearful, I can be very um, like, I don't, you come, don't come for me, you know? Um, and, uh, but it's really important to kind of keep an open heart and figure out ways to be safe, but also to be curious. I think curiosity yes. is one of the, the great um, attributes of, um, of, of deep religious exploration. And so I think that's just, it's so helpful to hear you say that. I, I want to just say, I, the trauma, of course, exacerbates our um, our defenses, our desire to entrench and step away from one another. And I have experienced it myself. I mean, even in the midst of writing this book and sharing this book with the world, I myself have felt moments where I just want to retreat and go home and be with my people. I want to be in my house with my family where we understand each other, right? And it takes a lot of work to build a muscle that says, I'm going to try to turn toward the other right. rather than turn away. And we can't do it when we're in the deepest grief. Um, we can't do it when we're like when we're consumed with sorrow. The work is not for everyone at all times. Right. And I, I've been thinking about I use a lot. I use the, the metaphor of the grief rituals a lot in the book. And um, and when we are in our deepest grief, we go into we go into Shiva, into Shiva, it's the house of mourning. And when you're in Shiva, you are just surrounded by love. This is the first seven days after the burial of a loved one. And you're just surrounded by love. Your friends come in, they feed you, they take care of you, they set up the house for you. They ask you if you need to go rest, you look tired. I mean, everything is sort of cared for only by love. Your enemies don't come into your house. <laughs> but, but you can't stay in Shiva forever. You have to at some point get up and we have this beautiful ritual at the end of the week of mourning where we get up and actually walk around the block and the reason we do it is to remind ourselves that there's a whole world of sorrow it's not just my pain it's also my neighbors who's grieving some other loss there's also a world of beauty there's a world of right. blessings and abundance and 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 so we expand our scope of moral concern you can't do that when you're in the depths of grief right. but right. some of us have a little bit more spaciousness where we can start to say, I'm ready to start to step out and see the world around me in a slightly different way and see the sorrow of the other as much as I, you know, as much as I'm still attached to my own sorrow. That's holy work. And it's very yeah. precious. It's it's like it's it's quiet work of wonder that we have to do once we have the real bandwidth and, and spiritual capacity to do so. Yeah, I mean, 100 percent. And, um, you know, you wrote this book. I'm sure it was wrapped and ready to go before the terrible events of October 7th. And, um, you know, speaking, you know, following on this, what we were just talking about, you know, read, if you were to read this book right now, what lessons would you be able to glean from your own book about how, um, as a Jew or maybe as not a Jew, to understand this moment and um and find a way to be part of the amen effect yeah. um yeah. in in this terribly um fraught and uh traumatizing moment well i'll tell you i closed the manuscript over a year ago um 
you know, it takes a long time to birth a book into the world. And so I closed the manuscript over a year ago. I was terrified um, when I went into the sound booth to record the audiobook uh, in November because I hadn't read the full manuscript since then. And I wrote the book as a person who was generally turning to the right and circling around the courtyard in the direction of the people who are there on pilgrimage, whose primary responsibility is to keep our eyes up so that we can see the brokenhearted. And I was that was that was my trajectory, both as a rabbi and as a person who sort of by nature is always like looking around the room thinking who's sitting alone, who needs a little love right now. Um, but then became a mourner in the course of the time in between I closed the manuscript and now my father died just before the Jewish holidays. Um, and I was literally turning from the left. I'm in a vela now in this year of mourning and, uh, you know, entering this sacred space and turning to the left and having the rest of the community say amen to me, which was a hard transition for me. Um, but also as a Jew in America, especially a white skinned Jew in America, who for many years was really coming from a position of relative privilege and saying, okay, I'm keeping my eyes up and thinking, how can we be good allies? Who can we join in the struggle for a just world? And how can I lend my voice and my solidarity and my support? And then on October 7th, suddenly was turning to the left. And really, I mean, in my own community, I happened to be that two of my board members had family members who were abducted by Hamas and were in Gaza as captives. And so like we, our community was reeling from the shock and the anguish and the sorrow and turning to the left and really saying like, hey, where are the people coming from the right who are like whose work it is to see us and say, hey, friend, is your family OK? Are you OK? How's your heart? I see you. and. And this, you know, look, it was hard, it's a hard time, but the, the silence was notable. And as I pointed out to my community in the immediate aftermath, October 7, October 14th, when I gave my first real sermon after, uh, after that, it wasn't universal silence. I mean, a lot of people did reach out. We just hear the silence louder than we hear the voices of love and solidarity. And that's something we also have to remember. So we don't create these kind of absolutes like nobody cares about the Jews. It's not true. We have lots of friends. Lots of people care about us. And but and a lot of people really didn't know how to just say, my God, this is horrible rape, abduction, massacre is not OK. It is not in service of liberation. I hope your family's safe. Like that was something that is that was bro broke my heart um, that people couldn't find the words to say. And, you know, and I, like those people who couldn't find the words also have spent my decades fighting for a just future for Palestinians alongside Israeli Jews. And so it, that was heartbreaking, Paul. Like, why is it so hard for us? To, why do we why do we who have the imagination of a movement that can envision a new America, a just America. Why do we have such a limited imagination when it comes to this very small strip of land in which millions of people live and we know nobody's leaving? Can we not imagine a just future there too, in which nobody is victimized by violence, in which nobody is oppressed, in which everybody is able to live freely? I, I follow and take inspiration from the Israeli Jews and Palestinians there who are spending their lives stepping into the breach and envisioning this just future, which I know to be possible. So, so I step into the booth as someone who's used to going this way and read this book. And I thought, oh my God, 
thank God, it still works, right? The, the, the wisdom is not mine. The wisdom is very old. And that's part of what, why we root in faith traditions that are thousands of years old, because the rabbis understood that even those whose muscles train them to go in this direction also have the muscles to walk in the other direction. And the wisdom of the sacred circle still stands. And, I'm so, and, and I feel like in some ways I wrote the book for another time, but actually it's more about now than it was about a year ago. It's more about a world that I wasn't even imagining when I wrote it than it even was about that world that I thought I was speaking to. So my long rabbinic answer to your short, beautiful question, what is the wisdom that this book offers us in a time of so much sorrow is that we must find each other with compassion and with curiosity, especially in moments when our hearts are naturally inclined to pull us away from one another. And we must do that not only to help mend our own broken hearts, but also to save our democracy and to save our society. That is the only way that we will be able to move through this moment and actually begin to heal. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent, you know, I, I, and I think, you know, the amen effect, you know, what does it mean to be present? What does it mean to show up? And I think, you know, what you just described is really a great reminder. Sometimes we're turning right, but then sometimes we have to acknowledge that we're going to be turning left in surprising moments and that we, we all kind of have the dual responsibility of being willing to turn left but when we're turning right, also see the people yes. who are, yes. are warning. This, see this the people is... and, and ask them. And I, I do think that the, you know, the question of like not being afraid. I think right now there's a lot of I'm afraid to do the wrong thing. Right. And, you know, and I'm not making excuses for anyone, but I think we're all trying. We're all fearful of how how do we show up perfectly right. for one another? And it's just not, we're not going to, there, there's, you know, mistakes will be made. And, um, but the biggest mistake is to turn away completely. And I think that's what you're offering here with this book is like that, the, that if you're, if you want to come from a, whether it's human or, or spiritual or religious impulse or a moral impulse, we can't turn away from one another. And what we need when we're hurting is not perfection. We just need presence. And I felt that as a mourner and I felt that as a pastor who spent many years just terrified to go into the depths of another of a congregant's sorrow and then realized it's not about getting the right words. It's just about bringing my love and my open heart. And that is true in the case of individual grief. And that's true in this case, like just reaching out and saying, I don't even know really what the right words are, but I love you and I see you and I'm here. And if you want to tell me what the life looks like from your vantage point, I will listen to you and I will say amen to your pain. That I think is the greatest gift that we can give one another. Right, right. Well, you know, this is I, again the um, amen effect is is so great, and it's it's it's. I'm glad it's getting the visibility it is. I'm thrilled to uh, be able to speak to you. Uh, I love to end this show um, with some hope, and so I would just love to give you an opportunity to you know say what gives you hope right now, even in this really difficult time. 
what gives me hope is is really seeing the people who can turn toward one another. I mean, even from the depths of anguish, and I'll lift up here the name of the Bereaved Families Forum. Um, these are the people who've lost the most in conflict and war and are, are linking arms in sacred solidarity and saying, if we who've lost the most can turn to one another with a different vision of the future, then can't we all? That gives me hope, Paul, because I know, I know that that is what we can do for one another. Um, and I will continue to strive despite my own, you know, triggering and my own trauma and my own sorrow. I will continue to strive to turn toward rather than to turn away, knowing that that really is the only way forward. Rabbi Sharon Browse, an amazing person. Her TED Talk on reclaiming religion has been viewed over a million and a half t- times. And her work heading up ICAR in Los Angeles continues to inspire and gather people of faith together in community. Her new book is titled The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. Sharon, I so appreciate you taking the time to be with me and with our listeners on The State of Belief. Thank you so much, Paul. Anytime you ask, I will be here. Thank you. Please be sure to subscribe to The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We need your help to keep making The State of Belief. Become a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And share what you're getting out of this show with people in your networks. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going at Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.